Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Reynard Loki of the Independent Media Institute, who takes a critical look at the lack of substantive progress at COP26, the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland. Sharon Levine, founder of the group Rise in Louisiana, and a winner of this year's Golden Environmental Prize, who talks about her group's fight to stop the construction of a petrochemical plant in her community. And Joseph Givargis, executive director of Our Revolution, a progressive political action organization, who assesses progressive wins and losses in the 2021 off-year election and the corporate media spin, blaming the left for Democrats' defeats. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. South Africa's African National Congress Party had its worst showing in local elections since coming to power in the 1990s. In this low turnout election, the ANC won 46 percent of the popular vote. Voters expressed frustration with corruption, sky-high unemployment, and poor public services. Yet, as the ANC's appeal wanes, the opposition remains fragmented. The main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, failed to gain ground as it is seen as a bastion of the rich white minority. In the province of KwaZulu-Natal, the nationalist Nkata Freedom Party won 25% of the vote in a clear challenge to the ANC, while a new Marxist party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, won 10% of the vote. South Africans often cast protest votes against the ANC in municipal elections, where many view local government officials as tainted by corruption. The ANC blamed its poor showing on apathy, the COVID pandemic, and a power blackout on Election Day. But party officials acknowledged that the latest result was a message from voters that the party needed to shape up. The election results may push President Cyril Ramaphosa to clean house. Banking lobbyists are leading a full-court press to kill a new tax enforcement proposal that could collect hundreds of billions of dollars in unpaid taxes from the wealthiest Americans. It comes as Congress has cut funding for the U.S. Internal Revenue Service over the last 20 years. This situation has allowed the top 1% richest taxpayers to escape paying an estimated $600 billion in taxes annually through weak reporting requirements. The Biden administration wants to strengthen IRS enforcement of wealthy taxpayers to help finance its Build Back Better domestic spending plan. The U.S. Treasury estimates it can collect $460 billion in additional revenue by 2031. The proposal calls for banks to report customer account information to the IRS, which small and large banks oppose. Republican lawmakers and 20 GOP state attorney generals are united in opposition to the increased IRS reporting requirements targeting wealthy individuals' bank accounts. Biden spokesperson Andrew Bates blasted the GOP legislators for bending over backwards to protect wealthy tax cheats who are breaking the law. There's a long history of attempts by unions to organize workers in the Deep South. 
Going back to the days after World War II, labor, despite major investments in time and money, had very limited success in winning workplace union recognition. More recently, unions have suffered some setbacks across the South, including losing a 2017 union vote at a Nissan auto plant in Canton, Mississippi, by a two-to-one margin after a decade of organizing and a defeat in a closely watched union election earlier this year at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. In these times, reports that despite the dual obstacles of institutional racism and oppressive anti-union laws, labor leaders in Mississippi and other southern states remain optimistic about the future of organized labor. But they say that the labor movement in Mississippi does not need sympathy. It needs money. It needs organizers. And it needs a long-term commitment to stay until the work is done. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland entered its second week, a stream of positive announcements were issued by various groups of the 25,000 representatives of nations from around the world gathered there. But 18-year-old Greta Thunberg, perhaps the planet's best-known climate activist, told tens of thousands of protesters in the city center that the conference is a failure. For what she described as a Global North Greenwash Festival, and a two-week celebration of business as usual. Against the backdrop of decades of inaction at international climate summits, government leaders and business executives in Scotland issued several agreements, including a deal to cut emissions of methane, a potent greenhouse gas, by 30% by 2030, a commitment to halt and reverse deforestation, and a coalition of banks and insurers who said they were committed to fund green projects to help get companies and nations to net zero emissions by 2050. Your reporter spoke with Reynard Loki, editor-in-chief correspondent with Earth, Food, and Life at the Independent Media Institute, who talks about what's at stake at the Glasgow Climate Summit and why so many people around the world are skeptical that leaders gathered in Scotland will succeed in making substantive commitments to address the climate crisis. What's at stake in the summit is basically life as we know it or have known it, uh, because really this summit has been going on since 1995. All the countries that have signed on uh, to the uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, they've been meeting every year except last year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they have been attempting to come up with an action plan to stem the climate crisis. And uh, particularly this year, they're trying again to uh, implement the Paris Agreement goals, which is trying to get uh, global warming, uh, the temperature increase, to be less than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The problem with this meeting of the parties, the COP, Conference of the Parties, is that, well, not everybody is on board. They have different goals for when they want to achieve net zero, i.e., getting your country's carbon emissions to be net zero by 2050, which is the goal 
uh, of the Paris Climate Agreement. It's a bunch of pledges and promises, but there has not been specific action or really meaningful action. Uh, the problem is that there's really no penalties uh, for a country that doesn't abide by these agreements. As we know, Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement when he was president. Uh, so really what's at stake is is life as we know it. Uh, I think that we are on target uh, right now to hit the two-degree mark of, uh, of temperature increase if all the policy promises are kept. That's really at the very teetering edge of where we want to be. So the Paris Climate Accord is really trying to keep the temperature increase to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels with a goal to really keep it at 1.5. But if we don't keep the policy promises that have already been promised, we are on target to reach three degrees of warming. And that would be completely uh, disastrous uh, for life on Earth as we know it. It would be massive heat waves, rising sea levels, coastal cities completely disappearing, desertification, agriculture would collapse, uh, corn, soybean, wheat, uh, that would all that would all go to the wayside. So so much would be would be gone. Biodiversity, uh, ocean acidification, the list goes on. So I can see why Greta Thunberg and her youth climate activists are absolutely concerned when there are pledges and promises, but no actionable, meaningful things that are going on that are that are actually penalizable. Well, Reynard, I also wanted to have us review briefly the announcements that have come out of this uh, climate summit in Glasgow thus far, which includes a deforestation commitment, a deal on coal to limit uh, the use of coal, uh, an agreement to cut emissions of methane, and a plan to stop investing public funds in uh, fossil fuel projects abroad. Any hope in these agreements, or, or at least the prospective agreements that have been talked about in Glasgow? I would say generally no. Uh, these are, again, these are pledges. These are promises. There's really nothing there but words. Uh, when we talk about uh, the deforestation issue, um, a lot of companies are, are, uh, companies are, at, uh, are, are really part of this problem. Uh, the agriculture and meat industries in particular uh, are, are a problem when it comes to uh, deforestation because they are going into Brazil. They're going around the world and they are taking their clear, clear cutting land uh, to create uh, cattle, cattle farms and, 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 and factory farms and all of the soybeans that are required uh, to feed all these animals. But in the deforestation announcement at COP26, there was not a single mention of the meat or agriculture uh, industries, which really is the main one of the main uh, emitters of, uh, of of agriculture. Uh, so that that is one issue that they're just not they're not they're not hitting uh, the right mark. I would say that the methane uh, the methane announcement, uh, which they made last week uh, to reduce emissions of methane, which is a, a global warming gas that has more than eighty times the warming power of carbon dioxide over the first 20 years it, it enters the atmosphere. That's a good, that's a good step. Uh, and I think that uh, it, it will be helpful uh, because Biden uh, is, is, is said for the first time uh, that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was going to enforce uh, limits on methane uh, released by the oil and gas rigs across the U.S. But again, this is an executive 
uh, regulation. This is, a, this is a power that comes out of the executive office. It's not, uh, it's not in law, so the next president could just uh, simply overturn uh, a Biden's announcement uh, on methane. So it's, it's really, it really probably is a wash at the, at, the end, at the end of the day on all of those commitments. That was Reynard Loki, editor-in-chief correspondent with Earth, Food, and Life at the Independent Media Institute. Read his recent article titled COP26, Will Humanity's Last and Best Chance to Save Earth's Climate Succeed? and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 26th COP, or Conference of Parties, is taking place in Glasgow, Scotland, from November 1st through the 12th. Hundreds of climate activists converged outside the official meetings to demand climate action commensurate with a crisis. Many of those same activists had come to Washington, D.C. the week of October 11th through the 15th and were joined by hundreds more outside the White House and Congress to demand immediate and meaningful climate action through the people versus fossil fuels. Led by indigenous activists and other people of color, 655 people were arrested during nonviolent direct action as they sat in front of the White House and Capitol building. Unscripted actions also took place, including those at the Army Corps of Engineers and the Interior Department, executive agencies that both have the power to stop fossil fuel projects, such as the Line 3 tar sands pipeline, by requiring an environmental impact statement. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus participated in the Week of Actions, which included short testimonies delivered by frontline activists across from the White House. One of them was Sharon Levine, founder of the group RISE in St. James, Louisiana, one of the winners of this year's Goldman Prize for Grassroots Environmental Courage. Levine's organization is fighting to stop Formosa Plastics from constructing a huge petrochemical plant in her community, which already hosts 12 other polluting industries. Plastic is manufactured from oil, hence the connection with the week of climate action. Her talk was interrupted at times, by cheers from supporters as activists across the street at the White House fence were arrested. They are sick, and we don't want the whole community to die down. So we're asking you to come to St. James and see about us, the people that put you in office. How could you turn your back on us? We didn't turn our backs on you when you ran for office. We supported you. And now you're doing this to us. I know you're hearing us. And we also sent you letters. We have 113,000 signatures asking you, asking you to stop Formosa. Formosa Plastics is a $9.4 billion plastic industry that wants to be built in St. James, two miles from where, I ho- from where I live, one mile from a church, one mile from a school. You don't care. You're just letting this happen. And these people coming to St. James like we are not people. We live there. This is our home, and this is where we plan to stay. So we're asking you, President Biden, to do something about all of this. We are not coming here just for the fun of it. We mean business, and we're going to show you what we mean today. I need to get this to you because these, these are the signatures of people that's asking you to stop Formosa Plastics from coming into St. James. We just had a hurricane, Hurricane Ida. 
it did a whole lot of damage to St. James and also to St. John the Baptist Parish. That's our neighbors. St. James and St. John are neighbors. We work together with a leader over there called Robert Taylor. He and I are co-chairs of the Coalition Against Death Alley, and we work together. Their community was destroyed also. I don't have a home to go to when I go back to, go back to Louisiana because it was destroyed in Hurricane Ida. But I plan to rebuild and I plan to stay in St. James. That's my home. That's where I was born and that's where I was raised. When I was a little girl, we didn't have to worry about all of this plastics. We don't need more plastics. We need to cut down on plastics. It's killing us. The chemicals that's being used to make the plastics are cancer-causing chemicals. Look up your facts. If you don't believe me, look it up. The industry in St. James, we have 12 in the 5th district where I live. Within a 10-mile radius, we have 12. I didn't know we had that many until I started to do this work. After I started this work, I had to retire from teaching because I couldn't do both. So I retired to work with my community and to save my community and to save the lives of the people that's there. We started this in 2018. This month will make a three years that I've been doing the works that I'm doing right now. If we can breathe clean air, that's saving a life. If we could drink clean water, that's saving a life. We need clean air, we need clean water. We need to go back to the old days when we were little, when my daddy would cook that biscuits in the morning and my mother would have the fig preserves and my daddy would have that fresh cow milk. That's what we need to go back to. We were healthy. So let's go back to where, to, to the where we were when I was a little girl. We had pecan, pecan trees. We had so many pecan trees, we had to get the neighbors to come help us pick up the pecans. We don't have any anymore. Chemical plants are killing our trees. Chemical plants that came into St. James, they are killing our, our trees and they are killing the people. As I speak today, one of my friends by the name of Oscar, he just found out he has cancer in his liver and his kidney. The doctor gave him two weeks to live. We just buried someone last week with cancer. Just about every week we have someone with cancer that's dying in St. James. We need President Biden to wake up. We need him to come to St. James. I've invited him before. I hope he can hear me today. I'm inviting him to come again. And I can show him everything in St. James that he needs to see to try to stop this and let us live. Give us back our life. Give us back our land. Give us back clean air and clean water. That was Sharon Levine, founder of the group RISE in St. James, Louisiana. Learn more about the campaign to stop the construction of a plastics plant in St. James Parish by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Major corporate media outlets pronounced the 2021 off-year election as a major defeat for the Democratic Party. 
and a warning about losses to come in the 2022 midterm election, where control of Congress will be at stake. Virginia's Democratic candidate for governor Terry McAuliffe's narrow loss to Republican Glenn Youngkin and New Jersey's incumbent governor Phil Murphy's slim victory in a deep blue state were pointed to by many pundits as signs of a party in decline, with the blame often fixed on the Democrats' bold progressive agenda. While the loss in Virginia was disappointing to Democrats, it followed a decades-long pattern where the party in the White House consistently loses that office in the year after a presidential election. Progressive candidates, however, won significant victories on November 2nd, with wins by mayoral candidates Michelle Wu in Boston, Justin Bibb in Cleveland, and victories in other cities. And while voters in Minneapolis rejected the option to replace their police department, voters in Austin, Texas, strongly opposed a measure to increase the police presence in that city. Your reporter spoke with Joseph Givargis, executive director of Our Revolution, a progressive political action organization born from Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. Here he assesses progressive Democrats' wins and losses and the need to pursue an electoral strategy to win more congressional seats for progressive candidates next November. This year, in 2021, which is an off year, but at our revolution, we don't think any, uh, any year is an off year cycle when it comes to elections. We uh, had over 65% of our nationally endorsed candidates won their races. And what's, to me, interesting, Scott, is, you know, the mainstream media narrative was Democrats got select this election, and that is true, but then they pointed to a handful of examples. Uh, And I think there are incredibly uh, powerful countervailing examples. So one instance would be the pundits uh, looked at uh, India Walton's loss for mayor of Buffalo as a sign that progressive uh, electoral power was waning. But the story that wasn't told is that progressives won mayoral seats in Boston, in Cincinnati, in Cleveland, and many other cities. And they ran by uh, promising to govern and enact bold progressive policies, whether it's from bringing a Green New Deal to their local cities, whether it's holding the police accountable, whether it's raising wages on city contracts. And the other thing that's interesting, I think, Scott, about this new generation of mayors that are rising up, Justin Bibb, Michelle Wu, you know, these are young, dynamic, up-and-coming progressive rock stars. And in some ways, you're seeing the emergence of this bench, and the bench uh, is going to continue to graduate up. The current mayor of Cleveland will likely be the next U.S. representative or senator. And so if you pull back the curtain, there's a countervailing narrative, I think, that needs to be told. Progressives did very well in chief executive races. Uh, the India Walton race, I think, was an outlier. Well, Joseph, I, I did want to go to long-term planning and strategies that I know you're thinking about all the time at Our Revolution. And uh, I'm going to quote Joe Manchin here. <laughs> now, Joe Manchin, of <laughs> course, is infamous for his uh, you know, kind of starring role in uh, degrading and 
sabotaging a lot of what Joe Biden had, I think, courageously put in his uh, Build Back Better plan, planks that address climate change in a substantive way, health care, as well as immigration. A whole lot of good things were in that initial $3.5 trillion uh, proposal. But uh, between Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, they've broken it down to $1.75 trillion, and it's not even certain that's going to survive here in the final voting. Joe Manchin, when he was asked about his opposition to certain planks in Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan, basically talked about how the United States was really not a progressive country, but a center-right country. And he said if the folks supporting and advocating these policies want them to pass, they should elect more progressives. And I know that spoke directly to you. How do you respond to Joe Manchin? I think he's got it right as far as his advice. No, I, yeah, no, Joe Manchin does have it right. Scott, at the end of the day, it's about power. And whether we win or lose what we want is in direct proportion to the amount of power we will. And look, at the end of the day, we elected a president who adopted a New Deal style platform in part because of Bernie and our movement forcing him to, but he won that without securing a New Deal-type majority. Yeah, we have to do better um, and you know, increase the margins overall of the number of Democrats that are in the House and the Senate uh, and uh, to take away power from Manchin. But I do disagree uh, – that with the assertion that the country is center-right, I think if you look again at all of the policies that uh, the progressive movement has been behind, whether it's uh, Medicare for All, Green New Deal, raising the way, all incredibly popular. Um, but we don't have the political will in Congress to get it done because we don't have the political power. Progressives do not yet have the political power. Um, and so we've got to expand the number of Democrats and expand the number of bold progressives uh, that are in Congress that are willing to draw a line in the sand. Uh, so, you know, I take Joe's, Joe Manchin's challenge. Yes, we got to elect more people. That's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. I don't take his uh, underlying premise as correct that this is a center-right country. I think this is a country that um, if you give, you know, given the pandemic, given the economic disruptions, in our lives. I think people want radical transformational change. I think they see things are not working. And this election was a signal that the American electorate sent to Democrats. It's time to govern, Hmm. right? Uh, It's time to get things done. That was Joseph Givargis, executive director of Our Revolution. For more analysis and commentary on the 2021 off-year election results, and what it means for the Democratic Party, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
Please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.